Welcome back to the Stephen Sully study. We're here at Woodbury House and again we're here with Mimbosa, the wellness company, capturing all the footage. I've got my next guest, Brian Simerson. Um, I've been trying to pronounce it um, for the last hour. Um, I got to know you about, I think about two or three years ago now, like well, casually, yeah. um, uh, I met you through some mutual friends and some mutual business affiliates. Um, I know you obviously as an artist and I know a bit about your background, but for the demographic that kind of don't really know you yet, mm -hmm. in short, who are you and what is your background, what is your title? Jesus, okay, um, <clears throat> well, who am I? Who are you? Good fucking question, that is. <laughs> <laughs> who am I? Uh, well, I, I, I kind of, I sort of say that I'm an artist now. Um, I struggled with that for a few years because I came from a photographer background. Mm -hmm. And then obviously before that I was in the military, so. But I've always been, um, I've always been in a creative environment through advertising, fashion photography, <coughs> and portraiture. And then that led me into the sculptures that I do now. Right, okay. So yeah, sculpture stroke photographer, if I had to give myself a description. Okay. <laughs> So to, to give you a bit of uh, context or background to my podcast, the Stephen, Stephen Sully study, what that means is, is my ongoing study, my journey, looking at successful people. Um, so that could be people that are business people, that could be artists, that could be chefs. I mean, I've interviewed so many different people. Oh, amazing. Chris is also part of the wellness company that we've got, which is called Mimboso, which covers mind, body, which is training and sports, and soul is to do with nutrition. So my podcast is basically an extension of that. Okay. And I love interviewing artists because I love their work, but I'm more fascinated about their background. And your background, yeah, yeah. to me, there was some, there, it, it, it sparked my interest because I've said this a few times on my podcast, but before I went down the route of sales and then into business for myself, I wanted to be in the Marines. And I know your background was in the military. Yeah, yeah. So just want to just sort of drill into that. How did you get into the military and what was your role? Was it like elite level or? Uh, yeah, it was elite. I mean, well, I, I was in the Special Forces Reserves. Is that SAS? Yeah, but we can't say that. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't say that. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, I, the, the ongoing joke is it's Special Forces, but really we were fucking special needs. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, was, it was quite random. It was always a bit of a childhood thing for me. Um, and then I, I never got into it, just sort of life got in the way. I don't think, I think I lacked the discipline when I was younger, which is a shame, because I think if I had I joined when I was younger, um, I would have gained discipline, which would have probably helped me later on in life. Um, but yeah, I, I just went along to an open day where it was a reservist open day. It was at Chelsea Barracks when that was still open. Right. And they had all these stands there and they just had all the different regiments um, showing off their wares, you know, and sign on the dotted line. So it was basically that. And I, I, when, I, when I went along, I was 34 at the time. Wow. I didn't realise I was at the age limit. I think now they'd fucking have anyone in. But um, I filled out all the forms and the guy was like, oh, sorry, mate, you're, you're too old. And I was like, yeah, but I'm keen as mustard. You know, I just want to get fit and do it. And, um, and they were like, my hands are tied, you know. And then I, I just got a tap on my shoulder and I, I turned around and the guy was like, are you really keen? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, come over here. And... Um, so I went over and 
all the photos in the background on their stand were like guys fast roping out helicopters and doing all that cool alley shit. And I was like, this looks pretty fucking tasty. And then um, I looked down at the stable belt, the regimental belt, and I just saw this little winged dagger. And it was part of the, um, it was part of the Special Forces uh, comms regiment. So basically, you know, all the radios, and it was like all the signaling and stuff, all the sneaky beaky stuff. And then out in the field with the guys. So I, I just signed on the dotted line, and um, then the journey began. It was a, it was like a one and a half years of selection process, training, doing shit I'd never done before. I was like really thrown into the deep end. And I'm not, I, I know it goes without saying, in the military it's going to be tough. But how tough really is it? It's not. It's not like every. It's not like Full Metal Jacket where you've got a drill sergeant barking at you. You know, you join the Marines or the Paras, the first few weeks are going to be like that. With the reserves, it was different. And because it was Special Forces, you know, obviously people are having a go at you, but they want you to create self-discipline. So if you're out sleeping in the field and you've got to get up and go on stag or you've got to go on patrol, they're, they're not going to be shouting at you to get up. It's down to you to get up and be self-motivated, you know. Um, I think that's why the, there was such a big drop-off because people thought, you know, I, I was around all these big fucking hulking G.I. Joe... Can I swear, by the way? Of course you can. Oh, right, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was surrounded by all these big G.I. Joe guys. And I, you know, I, you know, I felt like Frodo sometimes. And I was like... And you go on like these 10-mile tabs with all your kit on. And then literally you'd, 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 you'd go past one and he'd, he'd VW'd, you know, voluntary withdrawal. And it was a real mindset. Um, I didn't think I had it. But I was just determined not to give up. I think it's anything I apply in life now, I just apply that ment- mentality. It's just, you just if, if that's what you want, you just go for it. So being in the, in the military then, would you say it's really helped you from a mindset and even an emotional point of view that yeah. when you go now into business, making your art, um, doing shows, negotiations, do you feel that's really helped you, that bridging, bridging th- those two things? No, absolutely. I mean... <clears throat> It's given me a discipline. It, it, the regiment taught me an ethos, you know, and that was humor and humility, discipline, uh, constant pursuit of excellence. Um, and I try and apply that in life. Also, the camaraderie and the brotherhood that you gained, um, it taught you how to respect and be decent to other people. The, I, I suffered, though, when I got back from Afghanistan and then I went back into Civvy Street because, obviously... If you're around 24-7, you guys have got your back, you trust your life with them, they trust their lives with you, and then you get thrown back into London and you, you do realise that it's a very jack mentality, you know, people just looking out for themselves, and I struggled with that for a while, you know, just getting back to the normal grind of things, but that aside, um, yeah, I, I think I'm better for it, for sure, you know, all the experiences, losing friends as well. I, I, I want to ask you because I'm so intrigued and mm. uh, I don't know whether I'm a bit sick minded but like the things like people being shot people being blown up you know yeah. being ambushed by obviously whoever I mean is some of that like does it leave mental scars do you feel yeah it does um, it took me quite a while to get over my four mates that got killed they, how, they, they were, how did they get killed well uh, three of them were killed in an IED in a vehicle, um, and then one was killed on an ID in a contact with the Taliban. 
uh, he knelt on IED, I'm taking it's like a mine or a bomb. I, yeah, improvised explosive device. Okay. So it would be a, it could be a mine, it could be a homemade device, they bury it under the ground. Um, that was our main enemy really when we were there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 sh it shapes, it, it does shape you in your character and it gives you a real kind of um, a value in life. And I'm still in touch with a lot of the guys, um, in touch with the families a bit. We have memorial services uh, and, you know, and it means a lot. Um, and, so, and sometimes if I'm having a really dark moment and things aren't going my way, my, my mind does go to them and it's sort of, it sounds a bit cheesy, I don't know, but I, I sort of, part of the drive for me to be successful is kind of almost in their honour slightly. Mm. Because my work is so attached to my experiences in Afghanistan and, and the onward journey. So I, I feel kind of that it's sort of, they're sort of part of it, mm. if that makes sense. And then the, the exhibition I had after Afghanistan, The Best View of Heaven is from Hell, <coughs> which was a photographic exhibition of portraits of the Afghan police and the Chai Boys that were over there at the time. What's, was, chai, what's chai Boys? A Chai Boy was a nickname given to a boy within the police force. Okay. He would make chai tea. And, um, but he would also sexually service a lot of the guys within the police. So he was like, um, a, like a sort of courtesan sort of character. He was very sort of feminine looking. Right. Um, and he would wear eyeliner or he'd put roses in his AK-47 or in his hair. And he would fix and repair their clothes, cook for them, make them tea. Um, and we nicknamed it Man Love Thursday, where on Thursday they would have sex with each other. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a weird thing for us to go into, because it, it wasn't really homosexuality, but they were, they were finding sexual gratification amongst each other, because they obviously can't mix with women. Wow. So, it's a story not many people know about. <laughs> um, but that, that the basis of my exhibition was kind of showing that off, right. that character within that world of machismo because I was <clears throat> I took my ca I took a couple of cameras out with me and when I saw this going on I was like oh, this is amazing you know so rather than going for those iconic dusty photos of Chinooks landing and guys piling out the back of it I, I sort of tried to take portraits of these characters within the Afghan police Unbelievable. to show a different side of things you know yeah was it quite shocking that, that culture to sort of get your head brown it wasn't show. It wasn't shocking, but to 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 have that within a conflict zone was quite strange, you know. But um, it you know it, it wasn't wasn't a like we didn't have issues with it. Yeah, we just let them crack on. Yeah, yeah of course, it weren't <laughs> harming anyone. So, how long was you in the army for? Altogether, five years, but as a reservist. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a. I was in it for two, three years, and then leading up, and then I got called up. Uh, went away on a few battle camps. Uh, went to the Arctic, and then uh, yeah, and then served in Afghanistan. Any hairy moments for you, like shot, almost blown up? Oh yeah, 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 plenty. Shot out the sky, <laughs> shot out the sky, you know, anything like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, there there was lots of moments. I mean, we got we pulled up, and I was on top cover next to my mate. We, we, we pulled up into a contact, there was rounds coming over the sand dunes and then this tracer round just went right between our heads. Jesus. Yeah, and we just shot down, 
there was another time we were in a and concert. You hear it whizzing past you. I saw it. I saw the fucking thing. I mean, I just saw this flash and a crack and a thud. That could have been like a couple of inches to the to yeah, the... left or right lights out. Yeah, um, and there was another time we were in a contact and we were taking cover. I've actually got footage of it because I got my camera out, and um, we were taking cover behind an opium poppy field. I had my sergeant to the right of me, and we're trying to work out where the enemy is and um, this. Um, RPG, you know, the rocket propelled mm. grenades. One literally landed by our feet and bounced off. It didn't go off. And then a second one came down. So they, they, they'd pinged us. They knew where we were and they were firing RPGs at us. But thankfully, two of the rounds they shot at us were blank. But oh. had they gone off, yeah, that would have been game over as well. So you started the army quite late in your life. What were you doing before that? I was in photography. Photography? Yeah. Okay. And I was in photography, and then um, I was assisting a lot years back uh, some pretty cool photographers, uh, quite big names like David LaChapelle, Nadav Kanda, yeah. Gavin Bond. Um, and then I just saw, after Afghanistan, merged back into photography, which was quite a strange um, uh, change, you know. Um, and then... Um, that developed into the exhibition yeah but, but, but before the, the military it was and then rolling back more years I was a chef I trained, okay. I trained as a chef yeah so I worked as a chef for about eight years wow yeah yeah in London uh, no just on the just where I grew up home counties just west of London yeah. okay yeah. where are you from originally well, I was born in Enfield, London, okay. and then I was over in like Essex for a few years, right. then went Beaconsfield, okay. which is west of London, you know, where the famous film school is. Yeah. And there, there was an army base in Beaconsfield, as well. there was a language school, and all the Gurkhas used to go there. I think that was where I got my early obsession about the military. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nice. So, um, transition from the army now into what you're currently doing, <coughs> mm-hmm. you called this sculpture. Yeah. Um, so we've got one behind us, the AK-47 with real life butterflies. Yeah. So, um, okay, AK-47, I know it's a very iconic gun mm-hmm. affiliated with, um, let's say, uh, and I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn here, but like even um, terrorist group yeah. or certain armies, certain squadrons. Yeah. Um, why did you choose this gun over anything else? Well, I mean, for those re- a number of reasons, really. I mean. Firstly, I went back to Afghanistan and I was embedded with the Sunday Times magazine to take more photographs. Um, and then we were out on patrol and I'd, I'd, I'd taken a portrait of this kid with pink stickers all over his AK-47. <coughs> and I just found it fascinating how they kind of used it to, to make a decorative piece. But they were also fighting with it and protecting themselves as well. And um, some rounds started coming over while we were on patrol and I dived into this ditch with, next to this kid and we're kind of both nervously laughing because I was like fucking hell you know and all I had on me then was a camera you know I was just sort of like naturally went to shoot back and didn't have anything so mm-hmm. and then this kid um, it, me and this kid are just sort of waiting it out and I, I sort of had that moment where I was like I'm being shot at by an AK-47 and I'm sat in a ditch with this kid opposite with me with an AK-47. So there was that sort of parallel between the enemy's got it, the guy on my side's got it. It's the most iconic weapon in the world. Um, as you say, it stands for terrorism, stands for freedom, 
stands for revolution. You know, it's even appeared on the banknotes of Cuba. You know, they're all holding an AK-47 up in the air because it's, it's, um, it's symbolic of revolution, communism. Uh, it's the only gun that appears on a flag. It's killed the most people in the world. And I've always said to anyone, try, try for a week or a few days not seeing an AK-47 on a movie poster, in a news article, front cover of a newspaper, in the news. Everyone knows what it is. You can teach a kid to fire it in four or five minutes. Why is it such a successful gun? Just purely the design. It's just that there's hardly any working parts in it. You've got the cocking lever, a spring, the, the gas cylinder. You take it apart, there's nothing in there, you know, and it's just very functional. Um, and it's, you, it's kind of weatherproof. I mean, you, you, can, you can bury that in the sand for a month and pull it out, give it a shake and it will fire, you know. There, there, there's nothing really to it. Um, and I mean, it's kind of a beautiful shape as well. I mean, the, the curved magazine yeah. um, is what gives it its identity immediately as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's still used to this day, it's still produced this day. So um, with this particular one, I've seen an, another piece, I think, that you've done in respect to I think it was a terrorist attack in... in uh, oh, the French flag piece. That's it, in yeah, Nice, yeah, yeah. where the guy... It was the Paris, it was Paris okay. shootings, yeah. And you put, I think, blue, white, red yeah, butterflies on it. Yeah, it was the tricolour of the French flag. That's it, and there was the certain amount of butterflies on there represented the amount of people that, yeah, that had died. Yeah, I think it was 130 butterflies on there. So um, I can almost guess why you've done it, but just for the, the, the viewers and the demographic listening, yeah, yeah. Why, why have you chose the, the butterfly? Uh, for a number of reasons, um, depending on the narrative, I'll use a particular species of butterfly. But, but butterflies, to me, I mean, they're, they're symbolic of people's souls. So like with the French flag piece, it was important to use butterflies because uh, they symbolise lost souls. Um, and I mean, they kind of, in this piece in particular, it's, to me, it symbolises the fragility of Mother Nature. Because it's all this is all about the environment. Mm. Um, so, depending on the narrative of that particular work, it, it will be defined on that. I mean, I've, I've been using origami butterflies recently, made from one dollar bills. Wow! Mixing them with real dollars, uh, real butterflies. So for me, that that was symbolic of capitalism and Mother Nature battling it out. You know, so. Um, and I guess I'm just a bit butterfly obsessed. <laughs> they do look beautiful. So I know they're real. How did you get them looking so alive again? Well, uh, generally when you buy a butterfly, it comes completely flat. You know, they'll, they'll spread the wings out. But obviously it's got no depth, as you mentioned. So when, I, when they come to me, their wings are closed. So I'll rehydrate them overnight. And that puts a bit of moisture back into the body and the wings, which enables me to move the wings exactly where I want them to be. So depending on the species, some are a more beautiful underwing, and then like these blue morphos, they catch the light in a particular way. They're so nice. And then, um, yeah, and then I, I, I just, I'll, I'll pin hundreds of butterflies open, and I'll have the wings at different points, open or closed. And then I'll, I'll just start applying them to the AK-47, and then kind of let the butterfly shapes move within each other mm. and get that sense that they're just landing 
or taking off, whichever and how you look at it. You know. Yeah. With um, artwork like this, because it's so profound and it can have so many different meanings, I bet there's been some charities I've either approached you or you've worked with before in the past for like to represent certain things that your artwork is trying to, to display. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, literally, I just sold a piece. It was raising money for the parachute regiment. Wow. The paras, yeah, yeah. So I did. Um, I just did red, white, and blue butterflies to represent the maroon of their colours, blue from the emblem of their Pegasus horse, and then red, white, and blue to represent the colours in the Union flag. Yeah. And again, the bullet fillings were all to denote things within the paras. So <clears throat> when I was over in France last year for the hundredth anniversary of World War One, I, I handpicked some poppies. <coughs> Um, and one was near Arnhem, okay. which was where the, the Paris famously landed. So I had the poppy petal from Arnhem put in there. Um, I had one bullet filled with washing up liquid <laughs> to denote um, how surreal it is when you get back to civilian life. Okay. One minute you're getting shot at, the next minute you're doing the washing up. You yeah. Know? Uh, but that, that's that paradox. Some, yeah, exactly, exactly, which, which I love. But yeah, that, that, that went for 25,000. I was going to ask you actually then. So typically, how let's just say someone wanted to buy that today, how much would that cost? That in the gallery is around the twenty-four, twenty-five mark. Twenty-five thousand pounds. Yeah, yeah. Cool. But um, obviously, they range in price because I do some short-barreled ones. Um, I'll do ones that are all one species, one colour. Uh, the mixed dollar bill ones. So they, they, there's a variation in like if it's wall mounted okay. as well. How long would that take you typically to make? Uh, a good couple of weeks. I mean, the, the most tricky part must be um, <coughs> fixing the butterflies or, or bringing the butterflies almost back to life before you pull it on the, onto the gun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's days in itself. And then uh, sourcing the weapon as well, because all my weapons are taken from conflict zones. Wow. So they've all got a bit of history and story behind it. So they've all been de decommissioned. Yeah, they're all deactivated in the UK. Uh, like so a lot of them are from Iraq, Syria, the Congo. So this gun here probably would have probably probably has killed someone. Yeah, highly likely a lot of them have, or they've been used in conflict zones. Crazy, yeah. yeah. Crazy. And I, 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 I get a little numb to it, and I have to remind myself of that. I bought a gold AK-47 from Iraq the other day, wow. and it's actually got a bullet strike through it. Uh, and it's solid gold? No, it's gold plated. I bet that be looks beautiful. Yeah, it's stunning. And are you going to turn it into a, an art piece? Yeah, well, the, the idea is, I, I've, I've done a gold piece already, which I called um, Brutal to Beautiful. And I filled all the bullets with real diamonds, real emeralds, real sapphires. So the bullet fillings alone are in the thousands. And it's about how, in society, how we if, we, if we cover something in gold and make it look pretty, does it take away the brutality of it? And you see, a, you see that a lot in society. Uh, but another gold piece I got um, the other day, that's, I think that was from Iraq as well. But the, the, the Brutal to Beautiful piece has the bullet strike in it. Yeah. And when, the, when I bought it from the guy, he said he had to clean the blood off it and then get it re... Where did you buy it from? Did you say Africa somewhere? That one was from Iraq. Okay. Yeah. Because I think I've seen um, the gold AK-47 from somewhere like, you know, like Blood Diamond, for example. Yeah. I think there's a guy, there's a character in that who's got a gold... Yeah, that's and it, right. And it yeah, symbolises they've got so much money yeah. that they can gold plate even their 
their own murderous yeah, weapon. Yeah, they, they, they do it in Mexico. You know, they'll have all these gold plated <coughs> pistols and AK 47s. So I, I, did a, I did a piece on Mexico actually, and it's completely covered in the monarch butterfly. Wow. And the monarch butterfly is the only butterfly that migrates all the way down the west coast of America into Mexico. Crazy. And the Mayans used to think it was spirits returning from their past. And I did the whole thing on the drug cartels. So like, over 100,000 people have been killed in drug, drug cartel wars in Mexico mm. over like, the last decade. So I thought it would be fascinating to do all the bullet fillings to do with that and the knock-on effects. It has like people doing coke in the streets in London <coughs> and New York and it washes down into even damaging the jungle and the environment. You know? Yeah, yeah, there is that knock-on effect. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so... I don't know if the camera can pick it up, but you've got an exposed um, <coughs> chamber here. Yeah. And you've got different fillings. So in this particular one, what fillings are in these bullets? So this is to do with the environment. Um, so it's everything that creates um, environmental disasters, really, or it, it has a knock-on effect. So up the top, you've got sawdust, which represents deforestation of the Amazon. Okay. Uh, then you've got pesticide. Uh, that one in the middle, there's a tiny little man in that, is a builder. Wow. <laughs> so that's to represent man. There's sugar to represent, uh, represent over farming, destruction of natural environments. Um, then you've got oil. And the blue one is, you've got pesticide. Uh, we, um, like weed killer. Okay. You know, like um, yeah. sort of what they put on fields to destroy natural vegetation. And I, I, I just researched it. I went into what, what were the, like, the 10 most biggest um, things that are causing environmental damage. I think it's such a good idea to have it exposed, but where did you get that idea from to expose the uh, bullet chamber, the magazine? It was, it was back, it was a while ago. It, it, just, got, it just sort of came to me really, because I, I was thinking about covering the AK-47 in the different elements of what I wanted to do. Because the Spoils of War one that we talked about, that was covered in, that's covered in real dollar bills. And that one has got in the chamber of things like cocaine and yeah, stuff cocaine, like that. cocaine, um, opium poppy seeds I brought back from Afghanistan, uh, gold, religious symbols, um, earth to represent land, and it's all the things that we fight over I um, create conflict. I, I had a conversation with an artist called Chemical X a few years ago, and he's known for making artwork out of ecstasy pills. Yeah, yeah, I've and seen I, it. And yeah. I said to him, I said, well, I mean, I think it's fucking cool, but aren't you a bit worried that the feds might say, hang on, this is actually shipping, moving drugs. Yeah, yeah. Um, aren't you a bit worried about it? And he says, yeah, a couple of times some of my, some of my artwork has been seized. Oh, really? Have you, have you ever like, thought about that? No, I mean, I mean, there's been a couple of times when a, a, an art piece is being shipped to a country and I'll give them the option of replacing it with yeah. a... A substitute, yeah. Uh, but any pieces that are bought and sold and kept in the UK, then it's the real deal, the real authentic thing. Yeah, that's quality. Yeah. <laughs> I might, and that must be quite important as well. Yeah, I mean, it it it, it it's part of the uh, it's part of the legacy of the art piece, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there's some art, there's some bullet fillings I've had to change for other things, like the blood. I've had to use stage blood because real blood would coagulate. But I try and keep, um, I try and keep everything yeah. to what I say. Like if I say it, it's got diamonds in, then there's diamonds in the bullet. You know, it's um, it, it, it maintains yeah. um, a quality to the artwork. 
I, I love this piece, but let's just say not everyone's going to have 20, 25 grand sitting in, in their bank account. So what about other pieces like not as big or limited editions? Is it yeah. something that you go into? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I do private commissions and the, the, the price structure changes when, when I do that because you know, someone might want an upright piece. Like I said, someone might want a wall-mounted piece. Uh, the AK-47s can change in shape and size slightly. Mm. Uh, and, then, um, and then it's whether I want to do a one-off whether it, there's an addition. Yeah. Uh, I do embellish prints of the artworks as well. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying harder now to sort of cater for a wider demographic of people. Um, so what's like an entry-level piece from you? I know it won't be original, but... Entry-level piece um, is around about the 500 mark. Okay. I do, I do, these, uh, I do a 7.62 round. Um, bullet AK-47 bullet and I do um, there's an actual butterfly perched on the tip of the round um, yeah uh, and that's like in a little glass dome and then the, gla- the, the top of the glass the, the base of the glass dome is gold leafed so it's just a nice little piece for people to have and then I'll, I'll, I'll be approached I mean I, I, I got approached by this American guy um, he saw one of my bullet fillings that had tiny dice in and um, so he wanted a bullet with Dyson. So I, I just, I did a bullet with Dyson for yeah. him. You know, it's like, if it kind of turns me on and I think that's kind of a cool thing to do, I'll, I'll make it. Yeah. Know? I was going to ask you about some of your collectors. I know or saw that Dana White has purchased one yeah. from you. Yeah, yeah. The, the owner of UFC. Yeah. I mean, that's fucking quite cool. Yeah, no, it was cool. He, he got in touch actually. And um, I went out and saw, I've, I've met up with him twice now at the UFC offices in Vegas. And I went out there and um, I, I, I gave him a, um, a hand grenade that I embellished with dollar bills because he'd bought the one dollar bill piece. And um, so he put it with that and he showed me around his office and all the cool shit he owns. And, <coughs> and then I went What's back. he like as a person? Oh, his sound, yeah, yeah. And then I went back last year and we had lunch with each other and hung out. And, um, and he's commissioned me to make him another piece now. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well done, mate. But with hundred dollar bills. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, I mean, um, influence, influencers, certainly from social media's point of view, it does help a brand, an artist, a fashion company, whoever. Yeah. When you get certain iconic people backing a certain company, brand or individual, yeah. things can really take off. Have you seen that, that kind of influence from Dana White? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think some things like that can be instantaneous or they can be a slow burner. You know, if you if you build up a relationship or a rapport mm. with your clients, then it can work. I mean, it's a fickle society, isn't it? Mm. Everyone wants that little tick of recognition. Recognition, yeah. yeah. Um, and then when you do get that, it's amazing. And yeah, I, I wouldn't lie. You know, I mean, it would be great to sell to some um, people in the states. Mm. You know, big. I mean, there's there are certain people I would <coughs> like them to buy my works because I have admiration and respect for them you yeah know? and I, I see it as my work is a personal thing so the thought process of that being in their home or office would be kind of it's a nice feeling you know? yeah I mean if Quentin Tarantino was to turn around and say hey I want one of your works I'd be like made up do you know what I mean because I've got a lot of respect for the guy yeah definitely anyone else any other cool people that have bought your work um Chapman Brothers Elton John 
Really? Uh, yeah, he's bought some photographic prints of mine. Wow. From Did you the, chat to him? No, no, I, I didn't have the pleasure of chatting to him because it was all done through his collectors and stuff. But okay. he, 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 uh, the, my works were shown in front of him and he gave the cell uh, nod. <laughs> Amazing. But yeah, and then, um, yeah, and then, and then just more art collector people. Okay. But, yeah. And I want to ask you a question. Some artists find this next question a little bit, um, I wouldn't say weird, but some some deny it I think and some are actually really for it I'm talking about the investment side of art right some people say art should just be art you should never buy it for an investment it should just decorate your home or office yeah and others are like no we want to fucking trade it you know buy it this year sell it next year make 10% 20% how do you feel about art being an investment yeah I mean I've always seen art as an investment hands down and your market, would you say when you first started to where it is now, it's gone up? Yeah, I mean, it has gone up. I mean, it's, it's, it's I mean, I mean, the art world is probably one of the last bastions of, of kind of inside trading, isn't it? I mean, let's face it. But I think, I mean, I, I know galleries and certain artists where they'll manufacture the prices going up through auction, um, and it will push it up. Does it do any harm? It doesn't because it's it's for everyone's gain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, proud to say that my works have just naturally gone up in value. Have you had auctions? I've had auctions, yeah. I mean, my work's sold in auction. Um, like Sotheby's or Christie's? Oh, or no, someone? nothing like that, yeah. But, but it, I, I haven't, it hasn't presented itself to me yet, you know. Okay. But um, if, if I looked at the overall sale price of my works a few years ago when I started to now then there's definitely been an increase I mean I, I would I would always say only ever buy a piece because you, you love it don't buy a piece purely because it's an investment mm. um, I think flipping art buying art and then a quick sale um, you can do that with blue chip art if you just solely want to make money but um, I don't I don't think it's a healthy business practice mm. um, but I think anyone out there that wants to invest in art, then you just you just need to buy stuff. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of art swaps. So if, if I've got an artist that I like, I'll present them or they'll pre- present me a, a situation where we can do an art swap, which I kind of like. That's kind of healthy because it keeps it within the artist. I was know? going to ask you, do you collect any specific artists or what kind of genre you go for? I'm kind of mixed, really. I mean, I've, I've, got, I've got some... I did an art swap with the Chapman brothers, uh, Anthony Mikalev. He's um, he's quite a well-known painter. Um, got some of his stuff. Building it up, building it up. It's time as well. I mean, it's like I, I, I sort of when I'm out, I meet an artist. I'll be like, hey, yeah, you know, I love your work. Let's do an art swap, and then you just don't get around to it, you know. Yeah. But um, it's definitely on my radar to increase it up now. Good. And do you invest apart from art? Do you invest into anything else? Myself, just yourself and your brand. <laughs> And my brand, yeah. I mean, like, if I earn money, I throw it back into materials. That's all I do. So you you're know. super passionate about your work, your, your brand, and also your vision for the future. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd like to say, yeah, I'm really passionate, but I, I don't know anything else. It, 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 it is me now. You know, I eat, sleep, and shit my work. <laughs> I mean, I don't shit over my work. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. There's a bad way to put it. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I never thought I would be like that either. I, I think... Um, I think it's just a natural progression. You feel passionate about something, and I'm a, I'm a great believer in um, in what's the word? Uh, 
Oh shit, sorry, what is it? It's a great believer in visualization. So if you want something, you gotta go for it. What's yeah. your vision for the future then? Because I know we had a conversation before we started that you're mm. in your late 40s now. Yeah. And so. Thanks for that. Uh, no, but you don't look it, mate. You look very, very healthy and well. It's all that gym and boxing yeah, and yeah. going to our beef and sunning yourself. Um, but where do, you, where do you see yourself, your market, your brand, your vision going, going in the yeah. next five or 10 years? Because I think that's very important to kind of plan for it. It is, it is, you're right. And I never did that. And I feel like I've kind of, the last few years, I kind of feel like I've bimbled along a bit and I'm kicking myself now because it was always like, I, was a, I got over the first shock of like selling my works and the galleries have made more interested and I kind of rode that quest, crest of a wave for quite a while. And then I kind of looked back and I'm like, no, nah, I need this to continue and grow. And now I am making goals, you know. I think ramping it up in the States is a big thing for me. I, I, the amount of times people have said, your work will go down well in America. I've sold works in America. I've got a gallery in LA, but I, I want to ramp it up. The, the project I'm working on now, Hollywood Reloaded, where I'm shooting iconic imagery of people in film with the same weapon they're holding in the image, I definitely want to take that project over to the States, um, to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think just, just building myself up as a brand I mean, uh, you know, not, not, not in a sort of capitalist, nasty way, but I, I think um, just honest and just, you know, just raise the bar for myself. You know, I, th I think anyone has to do that, don't they? Mm. they you know, they, they, they have to keep moving forward because if you don't reinvent yourself, then you go stale and you go extinct. You need it, yeah, to be exciting and challenging all the time. Yeah, but for, for yourself, <coughs> you know, I mean, I, I learned a few years ago don't fucking do it for anyone else. You've got to do it for yourself. Like when you're making an art piece, don't do a crowd pleaser. You know, you, you, you've got to do what turns you on. And the moment that gets stale, then you've got to step it up and ramp it up and move on, you know. Which is kind of an answer to your question. It's like, that's where I want to go. Okay. Where, where the journey takes me. Is, you know, like I, I want to do a big anti-poaching project in Africa next year. I want to do this Hollywood Reloaded. We was just talking about like, I've, uh, this is digressing slightly but I stopped eating meat I still eat fish pescatarian part yeah. of it is because I just hate the thought of animals getting yeah, yeah. Um, killed and stuff and suffering and I really resent I really resent anyone going out there who, who's, who's a poacher it's kind of what I, I know uh, David Yarrow yeah, yeah I know David yeah. I, I really like his work yeah. partly because it's beautiful but the other part is because it's really demonstrating that there are wild, beautiful creatures out there mm. and they should be left alone, not hunted for some kind of trophy. No, um, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 was, I was, again, the AK-47 is used a lot in the poaching and by poachers and a lot of the ex-SF guys have gone out there and they're helping the, the, the wardens and the, uh, the anti-poaching. <clears throat> so I wanted to touch on that. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Leveson Wood, you know, he does those walking programs where he films it all himself mm. I know he's just done something with elephants but it's uh, Africa is a place that's very close to my heart anyway and seeing the destruction of such a powerful like natural habitat yeah. be destroyed because some guy in China wants 
ground down ivory yeah. to get a fucking hard on. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous. And, and now there's the massive debate of do we farm these animals that are being um, poached, you know, and it's, it's going to end up pretty messy. I mean, I, um, Africa, as always, by Western and Far Eastern culture, is still being rinsed to this day. And the, there's, a, there's a massive Chinese movement in Africa now that um, has a lot to blame for the, the poaching issues over there. I think it's just, it's just disgusting. And it's, it, and it's something that I want to touch on with an exhibition as well. Um, and hopefully, if I can shine a bit of a spotlight on the issues, then I, I'll do that. I mean, I didn't realise when I got into art that I would be so politically driven a lot of the time because well, I'm not as a person. But, but um, that, that's the point. I mean, we represent a few different artists and... A lot of the time, it's either affiliated to their backgrounds, which could have been quite controversial to do with drugs, could, yeah. do, could, could be to do with mental health issues, could be to do with gangs, violence or whatever. But then also sometimes it's to do with political standpoints. Yeah. And um, I actually think it's a good thing because it drives your work and it has meaning attached to it. No, absolutely. I don't yeah. think buying a piece of art that just looks good and it has no meaning, no backstory, I think it's pointless. It needs something behind it. No, totally. I mean, I mean, I made, I made a piece last. Was it last year? No, the year before. Uh, for Human Rights Watch, and they approached me, and the, they, they do they do amazing work all around the world. Um, and they, I, I just said, look, I'd rather go out on the ground with you guys and see what you do. So I ended up going to Iraq, and was out on the ground in Mosul when all the fighting was going on, and saw firsthand all the displacement camps and what was going on. Yeah. And uh, it really inspired me to make an artwork, which got auctioned off. They had a big event at the uh, Tower of London. And uh, I think it went for 35,000 in the end. Wow, yeah, it was amazing. that's amazing, yeah. really good. Yeah, I was stoked. Um, but I never really thought, that was never my intention when I started making artwork, you know. Um, and it, it, it is a good feeling. But I, I, it's a double-edged sword because I think I mean, I've noticed, and I said this a while back, is like artists, they do have a habit of kind of getting on their soapbox in their studio. They never really get out on the ground and see what goes on. And that's yeah. why I went to Iraq. Um, and there's a lot of artists that have done stuff with um, Donald Trump. And I'm kind of like, it's, it's, the, it's saturated with artists doing stuff for, with, about Donald Trump. And I know they're, they're, they're putting a viewpoint across, but in a certain way as well, they're kind of making him an icon. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think artists have to be wary of not empowering people yeah. by putting them down. You know, like they say, even bad PR is good PR. Do you know oh, I mean? yeah, definitely. So, yeah. So where, I, I, where focus goes, like the energy flows. Yeah. So, <laughs> so if you give it even positive or negative energy exactly. it's still energy and it's still focus it's still going to still going to push them up basically yeah. I, th I think it'd be more powerful if everyone just ignored Donald Trump you know what I mean? <laughs> it's quite a hard man to ignore though because <laughs> some of the stuff that he does right but um, just a couple more things you mentioned yeah. so goals vision which I've loved because regardless whether you're a, an artist a business person yeah. or anyone you, you need those things to push you along yeah and you, you need to learn to have goals yeah I think that's a big lesson in life as, as well planning for them yeah staging your goals strategizing something I would like to ask uh, artists because making a piece of art is one skill 
there's another skill set which is promoting yourself, like marketing mm. and sales, which podcasts, interviews, and that kind of thing is healthy to do. Yeah. But then also going into negotiations with dealers, with collectors, with galleries, with art agencies. How do you sort of set, learn that skill set? You just just trial by and get, error by getting your hands dirty. Yeah. I mean, I I I still feel uncomfortable talking about money sometimes, but you just you. you 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 learn you just have to toughen up really and deal with it you know you you get tucked over a few times i mean it's 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 tricky as an artist um because you don't know where to place yourself within that but um my dad said something to me which was quite interesting he he said you know whatever negotiation or whatever anyone's asking of you it sounds a weird thing to say but just say what's in it for me because Anyone that's going to be approaching you for anything is going to want something for themselves. Of course, you know? and yeah. um, I think I think you have to you, you have to draw a line in the sand and go. Well, this is me being creative, but how much is it worth? So, you know, then you go. Well, how much is thirty years of experience has got me to this point? You know, how do you put a price on things? Mm. Um, and at the end of the day. I think when you are an artist, um, which I'm fortunate enough to be, where your artwork is paying for you and you're earning money from your artwork, um, you do you do have to acknowledge that. And really, as I said earlier, any any money I do make goes back into material. So it's you're 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 you're, you're oiling your own cogs. Reinvestment all the time. Yeah, there's plenty of artists out there that come from a wealthy background, mm-hmm. and they they say they're an artist, but they're getting all their shit paid for. But you know, as yeah, I mean, it's I don't know if I'm bambling on a bit, but um, it's about it's about reinvesting in yourself. Yeah, you can only do that if someone's physically buying your work. And makes sense. Absolutely, yeah, it makes total sense. Um, so if I was a young artist, if well, someone listening and has been inspired by this conversation, which this is the whole point, I hope, I hope they are. So do I. Um, <laughs> what, would, what bit of advice would you tell them if they were getting into art for the first time? Uh, well, don't, don't fool yourself thinking it's going to be an easy road. I think today's society, everyone suffers from that. Have resilience, basically, and be prepared that you're going to have to battle. Yeah, we live in an instantaneous society. Years ago, someone told me it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. And there's some truth in that, whatever field you work in. Um, And I think just do what turns you on. You have to concentrate on what drives you, you know. And um, you just got to stick at it. I mean, Winston Churchill said... Success is failure after failure with no loss of enthusiasm. And that is a quote I live by. Because you'll have fucking dark days. You'll have days with no money. I mean, it was only a few years back. I couldn't even afford a train fare, you know. I mean, you've got to just keep at it, keep at it. Believe in your goal, believe in yourself. And then in the end, things start coming around. And you look back and you're like, you know, I mean, next Monday, I'll... I'm doing a collaboration with Terry O'Neill, one of the most iconic, famous photographers in the world. Um, at Annabelle's. At Annabelle's, Mayfair May, Mayfair, like yeah. a, one of the most prestigious private members clubs in the whole of London. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. <laughs> I don't think they've realised they've got some 
guy with <laughs> Tourette's and post-traumatic stress putting a fucking show on. But with an AK-47. Yeah, with AK-47. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, you do have those pinch me moments when I'm like, you, you kind of, it's always good to sort of reflect quickly, but don't live in the past and keep moving forward. But yeah, it's nice every now and then to sort of see the watermark and see where you got to. Yeah. I mean, had you said I was doing that a couple of years back, I'd have probably laughed in your face, you know. But any advice to any young artist, I would just be like, you just, yeah, you just got to keep strong, keep at it, and keep focused, and just believe in yourself, man. You know, don't be asking other people's advice that are just gonna knock you down. You know, you just, you just like create work that you feel proud about, and be self-critical. You know, and it's the relentless pursuit of excellence. You just got to keep going until you're happy with something and, and, it, and you'll find it will define you and then your character over a length of time. And it's the 1% a day. Everyone thinks everything happens overnight. They get that Hollywood moment, but it's not. It's, it's chipping away at it. It's like boxing, you know. You go boxing for the first time, you're like, you're just flailing around, aren't you? And you, mm. you learn focus, precision, discipline. And all these elements come just a tiny little bit a day. And then you look back two years later and you're like, fuck, I've really improved. You know? Yeah. It's self-improvement. Definitely. Um, I'd like to ask these couple more questions and I'm going to round it off. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say has been, let's say, toughest moment in your career or in your life, the hairiest moment? It could be from when you was in the army. It could have been when you was a chef, as yeah. an artist. What would you say has been a time which has been quite tough for you? Mm. I'd say the toughest part of my life was before I was making artwork and I was engaged. We had a house together and um, we broke up, lost the home, lost the fiance. Um, and it was then I got a call from the sergeant saying a tour of Afghanistan's come up, do you wanna go on it? And um, yeah, I was roaming around in a bit of a dark place, didn't have any money. I just, just got myself, I just backed myself into a bit of a corner, you know. And what was really interesting was, is there's a motto that I love living by, and it's, it's called This Too Shall Pass. And a lot of the GIs had it, they had it engraved on their dog tags. And it applies to dark moments like that, this too shall pass. But it also applies to when my, things are going really well, and you learn to appreciate them for the moment, and treasure them, and not take them for granted. But what was interesting was even at that moment when I was just like, man, I am fucked. I've got no fucking money. I've lost my woman. I've lost my home. Shit can't get any worse than this. That's what took me to Afghanistan. That's what took me to do the best view of heaven is from hell, which then took me back to Afghanistan, which took me to make artwork with that. So even your worst point in your life, always when you look back on it, it's probably the most it's the point in your life where the most light gets it defines shed you. on it as well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And the question attached to that is, what would you say one of the best moments where it's almost like an epiphany or so a eureka moment is like, yeah. what's just happened is so incredible, I'm so excited. Ah, uh, shit. I've had a few of those. <laughs> um, I think, I mean, going back to that, and the AK-47, I, I think it was when I was out in Afghanistan the second time. And I, I, I remember saying to myself, I said, right, if I get back alive, I'm going to make sculptures from AK-47s and treat them as blank canvases. And try and 
redefine how people see these weapons and turn them into something of beauty and intrigue rather than fear. Because at the time when I was thinking that, I was fucking shitting myself because some guy was trying to slot me. So there was that real moment of like, I could be dead in seconds. If I get back, I'm going to do this. It wasn't like I'm going to save the world. But since then, I think I've always tried to do good from the back of that work. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that goes back to me wanting to do something about the anti-poaching, bring light to the environmental issues. And stuff. Yeah. So I think that was one of my eureka moments, yeah. Cool. If you were to recap on this conversation we just had, mm. how would you title this podcast episode? How would I title it? <clears throat> Brand banging on about AK-47s. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> or uh, it was a good day, I didn't have to use my AK. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I like to is, ask is, is, that where, is that where I should come up with some really fucking cool title? It, it could be quirky or it could be just quite simple. Yeah. I like to ask all my guests the, the butterfly question. effect. How about that? The butterfly effect. Okay, yeah. that sounds good. <laughs> um, my catchphrase, my quote is "Be happy, never content." Yeah. I say that at the end of every episode, every interview. I've yeah, got yeah. my own interpretation of that. I like to ask all my guests, "What does that mean to you?" Be happy, never content. Be happy, never content. Okay, to me that sounds like um, you have to be happy within yourself but never content with the situation because the situation has changed quite quickly. Powerful. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your time. No, mate, enjoyable. And Thank uh, you. Really, really cool artwork. Like, Thank you very like much. Like I say, as soon as my house is done, I desperately need something like this, so I'll be talking to you about commission. Well, yeah, come over to the studio and we can talk butterflies and AK-47s. Lovely. Um, wicked. That's it. That's a wrap, guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you got a lot of value from this. Oh, yeah, and the last thing is, where can everyone find you? What, quite literally? Or you want my personal address? Uh, <laughs> maybe on social media for now. Or my local pub. Uh, it's Brand Simonson. Okay. Uh, yeah, B-R-A-N-S-Y-M-O-N-D-S-O-N. Uh, or brandsimonson.com. Quality. If you Google my name, something pops up. Or uh, band, AK-47, anything like that, I'll pop up. Yeah, but Instagram, Brand Simonson. Sweet, okay. Be happy, never content. Thank you very much. Peace out. Mm-hmm.